Well, thanks for singing, youngsters. That's always nice, and what a great, what a great song that is. It made me laugh when Melissa picked that amazing grace variation we were singing at the youth retreat. We are leading some music there, and we were going to do Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, that kind of newer version of the song, and I was kind of leading leading or getting us started on a lot of those songs, and I started singing that version of Amazing Grace instead of the song everyone else was trying to play and sing, so that was fun. Thanks for rubbing that in. No. <laughs> oh, what a lovely, you know, I bet, I bet when that version of Amazing Grace came out, like it's about 1930, uh, an Appalachian, an old Appalachian uh, song or melody that was just put to the words of Amazing Grace, just like people have taken Amazing Grace, putting it to, put it to the words of, or even the melody of House of the Rising Sun, you know, things like that. And I wonder how offended people were, you know, when the traditional Amazing Grace was given a, a different melody for the first time, but yet somehow people got over it and it got into our, our songbook. Fun to sing that tune. I remember hearing it for the first time after having kind of grown up with the traditional uh, ver- variation of it. There's a southern gospel variation of it too that we've sang as a special, you know, over the years. And just interesting how you can take good words, put them to any number of different melodies and styles and guess what? They're still good words. They're still encouraging words. So that was, that was fun to sing that tonight. Well, let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll get into our devotion tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't treat us based on what we deserve. You treat us in love and mercy and grace and you do for us what we don't deserve because of your tremendous love that you have for us, which was demonstrated through your willingness to bankrupt heaven and send your only son, Jesus Christ, to come into a world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So we think about how the gospel message is a message of good news. It's primarily a message of good news because it takes mankind out of the equation. It doesn't make salvation about what we deserve, but it makes it about your offer of love made possible through the work that you did and through what you've accomplished on Calvary, not what we need to do or work we need to do or things we need to accomplish. Pray that we would keep the gospel message clear as we present it to those who are lost and dying. Pray that we would keep all of the focus where it rightfully belongs on you and your love and your work on the, of death, burial, and resurrection on behalf of uh, those that were not righteous, those that were ungodly, those that were sinners, those who were, who were alienated from you, those who were in fact your enemies. Thank you that you made a way where there was no way. Pray that we would just proclaim that good news as, as it's a thing that can bring light to the darkness and pray that we would fulfill the mission that you've assigned us of wanting to be bright lights even in, though we might be in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that you've tasked us with being a reflection of your light into those spaces as you direct our, our steps and you guide our, our paths. Pray that we would have a posture of complete and total dependence on you, remembering the pit that we were dug from and living the Christian life the same way we were saved by faith through as by your grace apart from human works that we would allow you to produce your manner of living in us as we would stop resisting, stop quenching, start, stop fighting you, but just have a yielded mentality and a willingness to allow you to work in and through us in a dependent posture that allows you then to fulfill your plan for our lives as we are now a conduit that you can 
work through through your power and strength. Pray that that would be something that we understand how the how we get to be Christians and how the Christian life is lived and that we would profess that and proclaim that to those that come into our paths. Pray for even this devotion tonight as we look out look at just a picture of the cross that can be found in the Old Testament as we're doing a series on how only you can save and how that picture is is presented throughout the Bible because we have a tendency of always trying to insert ourselves into the equation. Pray that we would just be encouraged by seeing that, seeing how often that story has been told through the one primary narrative of the Bible, the story of the Bible, how it's one cohesive story though about how man is hopeless apart from you, but through depending on you we can live a life we can have life for starters and then live a life that would bring you honor and glory. Thank you for all the hard work that's gone into uh, br- people bringing different dishes for tonight and working in the kitchen to make a meal possible after we uh, go through our devotion here tonight. Thank you for each and every one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of tonight's devotion is A Picture of the Cross, A Picture of the Cross. Now, as I mentioned, even in my prayer, the Bible is ultimately one cohesive story communicated by God through human writers. It's not, the Bible's not a collection of Christian moral values and principles. It's not a collection of stories that just happens to be thrown together. We have one author, every word of the Bible, every point of punctuation, even in the original languages anyway, was inspired by God. It was literally God-breathed. And so, in a sense, you can say Paul wrote this or Moses wrote that, but the truth is they were a pen that was used or a writer that was used to put to paper the things that God was speaking through them. But because it's one author, it's one, one story being told by an, a sovereign, all-knowing God, naturally the Bible has a lot of the same features that we would find in any story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, it has points that are trying to be made, it has characters, it has protagonists, it has antagonists. Young people, just wake up here. Who, who knows what a protagonist is? Who's got that far in school? Okay, let's try the opposite because they're opposites of each other. Oh, we got one here. Okay. How, how about antagonists, if they're the opposites of each other? What, what does every good story have? We've got another hand behind you. Go ahead. Yeah, a main, a main character, if it's a protagonist, it would be like the hero of the story, right? The, the good guy, so to speak, the one that we're kind of rooting for in the story. And then the antagonists would be the ones who are kind of hindering that or kind of the villains in the story, right? So in any event, the Bible has those kind of things. And if we talked about it enough, we would be able to identify some of the points that the Bible's trying to make. We'd be able to identify sort of the chronology of how the story of the Bible unfolds, how it has a, a cohesiveness to it. Because again, it's written by one author. It's intended to be read. God wrote it for our benefit. And it's to our shame and detriment that we don't invest in it, that we wouldn't read it. Uh, Imagine that the creator God and all-powerful sovereign God of the universe communicated to us 
a story that was a way of revealing himself, but was actually a story that was focused on man in many ways too. It, it put the primary focus on God and who he is, but in doing that, it, it effectively communicated how that God would interact with his creation, specifically though mankind, and how God would make a way for those who chose to live life in rebellion and rejection of him, to be made right with him, uh, so that there could be a restoration that would take place as we have sort of paradise lost and we have this estrangement where we're alienated from God, but then there'd be the story of how God and his love wouldn't be okay leaving those he loves so much in a state of separation from him, but he'd want to make a way for man to be reunited with him. And so we think about how the story unfolds, whether as you're starting from Genesis and you're working your way specifically toward the cross, but then even from the cross to the eternal state where we'll be with God for all of eternity or we'll be separated from God for all of eternity. It's one cohesive storyline, though, about how man can be made right with God or how man can be redeemed. And so in that sense, we have the normal kinds of things that story have. It, like any true story, the Bible follows a timeline chronologically. It builds towards a climax. It's full of foreshadowing and symbolism. So in a good story, do they kind of leave you, you know, tell you right away how the conflict is going to be resolved? No. Is, no. They want you to do what? Calvin? That's it, get hooked. They want to get you hooked. They want to have you keep reading, right? If they just told you right away how, how the thing would end, the punchline of it, you'd, you'd have a pretty short story, right? And so the climax of the Bible isn't given right away. It's all building towards what, you know, you start with this idea that God has to reconcile or fix or undertake to deal with this estrangement between man and him on a re as a result of sin, getting in the way and creating this barrier of separation between man and God. So God could right away, he could have from the first pages of scripture say, this is what happened, then turn the page in chapter four of Genesis, he could have said, and this is how I fixed it, this is the solution to that. That's not how he, t he chose to tell his story because he wanted to reveal a lot more about man and man's character and man's need. He also wanted to reveal a lot more about himself and why he was a God worth trusting, a God worth depending on, a God worth following. And so if you're the one writing the story, guess what? You get to decide how it gets told, right? But the Bible is like most stories where the climax isn't right away. There's symbols and there's foreshadowing that kind of hints Kids, uh, foreshadowing is just like little hints that the author would put in the story to kind of give you a little bit of an idea of what might be coming. And sometimes there's a twist and they, they try to get you to think it's going to go one way and then there's a twist in it and it actually ends up a little bit different. But the Bible has all of this foreshadowing and, and symbolism that's building towards the climax. And in the climax and in the Bible, the climax is as far as I'm concerned, it's the redemption that is finally culminates in the, fi the final redemption made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. So the, the biblical narrative, it climaxes there with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his future sacrifice, it's hinted to at. It's foreshadowed. It's predicted prophetically in several places in the Old Testament. So we have considered several of these hints or these illustrations in our series, Only God Can Save, how God was showing how this whole thing was going to work out. And we, having studied some of the Bible, gone to Sunday school and whatever, we kind of know how it, how it works out, but have we actually 
you know, read that. So we've been going through and pointing out that throughout the Old Testament we can see different illustrations and symbolism and foreshadowing and hints and illustrations about how only God can save, how man has this problem where as a result of his sinful nature and his sinful choices he's been separated and estranged from God. And if something isn't done to resolve that, that because the penalty for sin is death, that he'll have to remain forever separate from God, which ultimately means a future, an eternal future, in the place that God made for sainted and the fallen angels, the lake of fire. He'll have to be forever separated from God. So that will be his, his right or just penalty for having chosen sin and rebellion against God. So the Bible tells us that that's the consequence of being a sinner is that you'd have to die. But the Bible says that we start to see this symbolism that only God can save, meaning either I have to pay the debt that I owe or God's gonna rescue me by sending a separate or a substitute or an innocent to die in the place of the guilty. Are you kids following me? That this is kind of the story of the Bible, that God's gonna have to send a substitute who will die in the place of the guilty so that we don't have to die, we don't have to be separated from God? Well, we've seen several of them so far, and tonight's passage represents another example of the Old Testament foreshadowing or hinting at God's plan of rescue. Now, this is perhaps what we're going to look at tonight, is perhaps the first illustration of the actual manner of Christ's death. So we have this idea that there's going to be a coming Redeemer, that God's going to have to make a way, a permanent way, to deal with man's sinfulness through the substitutionary death of another in the place of the guilty. It's pictured through temporary coverings for sin that we've seen in the form of animal sacrifices, in the form of animals who gave up, had to give up their lives so that sinful man could be clothed in the, the skin of, of those animals. We saw that in the very early chapters of Genesis. And so we've been seeing some of this. We see how man couldn't save himself in the flood. There was only one ark provided. God's the one who provided a way of rescue. There was one door. There was only one way to be rescued. That man had a choice to make. Would he trust God and God's provision and God's salvation, would he walk through that door in faith or would he not? And of course, we know eight souls were saved from that flood. And so we then we saw mankind had opportunities to respond to God. Mankind tried to work their way to God through the Tower of Babel. We saw how mankind had this perspective where instead of trusting that only God could provide a way of rescue, that they would try to reach God or approach God on their own terms. And there's stories like that throughout the Bible too of mankind repeatedly refusing to approach God in the manner specified by God and, and wanting to come to God their own way under their own guidance in their, in their own intellect, their own wisdom, they're on their own terms. And God says, that's not satisfactory. That, that won't work for me because there's only one way that you're gonna be able to approach me. It's on the basis of me, a loving God, providing for you what you can't provide for yourself. And so now we come forward, we keep moving forward through the Old Testament and we get to here what I think is probably the first illustration of the manner of Christ's death and how did Jesus Christ die? Who knows, how did he die? Did Jesus die of old age? And we have a hand back here. He was crucified on a cross, right? A very humble, a very humble entrance into the world in a manger, right, in Bethlehem, a very little city, and then a very, what is the word I'm looking for, a not noble death. Somebody help me out with a word for that. What's that? 
a humiliating death, right? The cross was reserved as a death for criminals. It wasn't somebody that, it wasn't a death that suited a king, right? And Jesus Christ was ultimately the king of kings and lord of lords, and one day everyone will acknowledge him as that. So here we have the first illustration of the cross. Let's take a look at Exodus 12. So turn there if you haven't. We have about seven verses we're gonna try to get through here. Remember, I'm talking about how the Bible is sort of, it's hinting at the punchline. It's, it's, it's hinting at how things are gonna work out. And here's our first picture of not only that there's gonna have to be a way of rescue that God provides, not only is it gonna involve death, the shedding of blood, not as only is it gonna involve the substitution of an innocent in the place of the guilty, not only is it gonna be only God's way or no, or no way, but, but here we have an idea or a little bit of a picture that it's gonna involve Across, and of course, it's not real clear. We look backwards with what 2020 vision. Young people, do you know what that means? You look backwards with 2020 vision. It means when you're going through life, things seem a little bit blurry. You don't really understand why things are happening, but oftentimes, with perfect glasses, having lived through it, you can look back at it and you can see things clearly now that you couldn't see clearly necessarily then. And I highly doubt that anybody who was go- going through this here really saw this as symbolic of how Jesus Christ would die, but nonetheless, it's still an illustration that we can look at. Let's pick up in verse one. Now the Lord spoke, this is chapter 12 of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, our second book in the Bible. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So there was a little bit of pooling together of resources in a sense. For Remember they were slaves at that time in Egypt. And so there was a little bit of pooling of resources for smaller families, but other families each would have their own lamb. Now, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, so about four days. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So there's a lot we could go through here tonight. We're not going to for the sake of time. We're just going to jump right into this picture. But the picture has, has been from the beginning that a substitute is going to be needed. A substitute is going to be needed in the place of the guilty. And this represents one of the primary components of the gospel message. You see, God's justice prevents him from overlooking sin. And the primary, of cons- the primary consequence of sin is that it causes spiritual death or separation from God. Now, if every person is said to be a sinner, if every person is said to be a sinner by birth, being identified with a race of sinners in the family of Adam, by their very identity, but then by choice, all men sin, you have this problem if sin separates and the wages of sin or the penalty or the consequence of sin is death, to be spiritually dead or separated from God for all of eternity, that's a real problem in all Mankind face that problem. Now there's only two options. If the consequence of sinning is death, meaning that you deserve to die, 
you only have two possible outcomes. Either you're going to die and pay the debt that you owe, or somebody else is going to have to die in your place. That's the only two options that are available. And so we see that here in these first four verses that a substitute is needed. And God says that, reminds the whole nation of Israel now about this through Moses and Aaron. And so he says, every family is going to need a lamb. Everyone's going to need a lamb. Now you move on and you see that the lamb is going to have to be perfect. See, not just any substitution will do. You know how the Bible talks about peradventure a righteous man would die for another righteous man or another man? You know, Pastor Weefel talked about that not all that long ago when he filled in just this idea that maybe you could find somebody who loved you so much that they would die in your place. But best case scenario, their death would satisfy the debt that you owed, but it wouldn't do anything for everyone else. And the fact is they owed the same debt, so them dying for you wouldn't do anything anyway. Not when it comes to spiritual matters. And so the substitute, the death or the value of the substitute is going to have to be greater than the debt that is owed by all men for all sin for all time. And that's why all of this sacrificial symbolism It was just that. It was symbolic. It was a temporary picture or a temporary covering for sin, but it wasn't the final sacrifice for sin because all of the blood of bulls and goats in the world couldn't atone for sin in a permanent way, we're told by the writer of Hebrews. So all of the ongoing sacrifices would never save a man's soul. They were just a way of man recognizing and acknowledging what God had said, that God was going to have to provide a sacrifice or a substitute in the place of the guilty. And it was a response of faith to say, I'll take God at his word, and I'll trust that God is going to have to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Even though I don't understand exactly how he's going to do that, the only way I can be made right with God is on the basis of God providing a way to deal with my sinfulness apart from human works as a result of his love and through his grace and mercy. That has always been how mankind could be made right with God by responding to the truth in front of them and taking God at his word. So now we think about even this lamb must be perfect. Let's read that again in verse five. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Now we're told that the lamb of God was without blemish and was without spot. He was the sinless, perfect, final lamb, the last lamb, but he was a perfect lamb. God, Jesus had never sinned. So the sinless Savior died so that my guilty soul could be counted free. Counted just means to be determined to be free or viewed by God as being in a right standing with God on the basis of what Jesus Christ had done to take my sin off of me, to pay my debt so that my account could be in a right standing with God the moment I would put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at that very moment where I was persuaded or convinced to trust in what Jesus had already done for me by paying my debt, and I put all of my eggs in that basket of faith, apart from human works, apart from human rituals, apart from anything else, the moment I decided to do that, I received Jesus Christ. That moment I was sealed, I was saved, I was adopted, I was placed into God's family, and he said, I'll never let you go. Now that was true at a moment in time in the Old Testament where a man was justified, 
or regenerated through faith apart from works. We're told that about Abraham looking backwards in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, not to him that does not work, but instead believeth on him who justifies the ungodly. Who justifies the ungodly? God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Justifies means to declare to be in a right standing. So now to him who does not work but instead believes, the word that is used a hundred times by John in his gospel, believe, 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 to be persuaded or convinced to put your trust in something. Now to him who does not work but believes instead on him, God who justifies the ungodly, his faith, taking God at his word, is counted to him for what? For righteousness. That's how he's put into a right standing with a holy God. Now this lamb though has to be perfect. So just any old substitutionary sacrifice won't do. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A clear picture of Jesus Christ, and I hope you, you see that. Now we're reminded again that the penalty for sin is death. You know, so many people believe that there must be some way that I can atone for my sinfulness by doing the very best I can. In fact, I've shared this story with you, but I'll share it again. I was talking to a man once on vacation, and he heard that I was a pastor. He said he was a man of faith. I said, oh yeah. I said, what do you think, if you were to summarize the gospel or the good news of the Bible in a nutshell, what is the good news that God has for sinful man? How does, a, how does a sinful man get put in a right standing with a holy God? How would that ever happen? What would you tell somebody, I asked him. And he said, you do your best and then God does the rest. Now, that's a catchy little t uh, slogan, right? It rhymes, best and rest, okay? But is that the gospel? That's not the gospel. You see, the Bible tells us that you recognize your need that you can do nothing, that there's nothing good in you, that even your works of righteousness are filthy rags to God. You realize that and you cast yourself in a sense in a posture of complete dependence on God to solve your problem. And we know that he did that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In any event, there has to be death. The penalty of sin is death. You, we saw that in Genesis 2.17, dying uh, spiritually, you will die physically. You know, you're gonna now not live forever. Life is gonna have a short, a finite end to it because of your sinfulness. So dying spiritually, there's also gonna be a physical death that comes with that. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness is what that word means and every other translation almost has it that way. There is no forgiveness apart from what? The shedding of blood. So the lamb is symbolically killed here. Here the lamb is killed directly by who? Look at this. Who's going to kill this lamb? The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now, that's not saying every single person in the family will do this, but Moses didn't go along and kill a lamb for each one of these families. Who had to slit that lamb's throat? Sorry if that's a little too graphic, kids, but who had to do it? Probably the, the, the spiritual leader of that family, right? Probably the dad. Did the others witness that? We don't know. It doesn't say. Probably. Was there some, maybe some pangs of, that doesn't feel that great to have to do that? Would you feel that way if you had to do that? Would it really hit home with you that you're a sinner? That something innocent is going to have to die? as you watch the lifeblood flow from that 
innocent lamb? Would that really hit you hard, do you think? Well, that's what's happening here. And I don't want to dwell on this, but you adults who are interested in this, go read Leviticus chapter 1, especially verses 4, 5, 6, right in there. When you would bring a lamb to the tabernacle, you would kill that lamb, not the priest. You would skin that animal, not the priest. The priest, you would cut up that animal, not the priest. The priest would then go through the different symbolic uh, rituals that were associated with the tabernacle with, with the parts. But you would be the one, it says. Now, I haven't really studied it enough, but that's what it says in the instructions that are first given to the nation of, of Israel about the ceremonial law. You would be the one doing it. And I wonder if that, that must have had a, a significant impact on people. It really must have. You can't pass this off on someone else. That's the takeaway, kids. Your parents' faith can't save you. You have to see that you have a problem that you deserve to be separated from God and that you need to put your trust and confidence in what Jesus Christ did for you personally. Your parents' faith, your parents' church attendance, your Sunday school attendance cannot save you. Your trust, being convinced to... I believe that's true. Just like I could tell you anything. And, and if you believed it was true, that's it. It's not hard. If I tell you I have, a, I have a chainsaw in the back of my truck, if you believed that that was true, you would be exercising faith. Now that's a very small thing, but faith isn't really complicated. It's to accept that something is true. If you believe that you're a sinner and that Jesus died to pay your sins, you are saved. There's no wondering about it. You can fall asleep. You can go through the rest of your life knowing that you are God's child and he will never forsake his own. He will never let you go. So in any event though, there's death that's associated with sin. The animal is actually killed. You, you think about that song we sang on Sunday. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that caused Jesus to die on the tree. See, it says, all my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me, not just for everyone else. Now let's see the picture of the cross. That's the climax of all this. Let's read verse seven. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So here's our picture of the cross. See, blood was put on the doorposts and on the lintel, meaning the top of the, the door. So one, two, three, three spots. Now, does it tell us that that makes the same shape generally as a cross? No, but does it? Would you have to be dogmatic about this being symbolic of the cross? No. And what you'd have to be dogmatic about is that the killing of the lamb and the shedding of the blood was certainly a picture, an illustration of the cross. Could you, can you dogmatically say that for sure the arrangement of the blood is, is showing us the way or the means in which Jesus would die? No, I don't think there is a specific passage that specifically in the New Testament says that's what that was symbolizing. But I would be hard pressed not to see that. How can you not see that shape when you look at blood, blood, blood up here. 
doesn't it, in fact, because it's over a door, doesn't it actually make you think of John saying, I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. In the center of this cross-like shape, you have a door. I mean, come on. That's pretty clear picture, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you have that there. Now, here's something else I came across. I'm not able to quote you a, a verse on this. But what I came across was this, that most of the dwelling places for this type of a societal rank in Egypt, which was a slave level, would have lived in primarily mud-based houses. They'd given up their tents of being a, a nomadic culture long, long before this. But it said even the poorest homes would have stone sides and then the lintel. You'd have to have stone sides to carry the weight of the stone lintel, or ma- sorry, mantle, I think it is, across the top. And so those three pieces would be made out of stone. It says this archaeologically based on research that they've been doing or studies have been doing archaeologically in this area where most of the the nation of Israel is thought to have lived during their time of bondage that in a lot of these uh, ruins, the rest of the houses, of course, are long gone, but what's left behind? The sides and 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 the top. What do they find on the sides and the top? According to the, what I came across, the, the names of the people in the homes were chiseled into the stone of the doorways. So just like you might have your family crest or your family name across the door to your home or on a sign outside of your home or on a mat outside of your door, that was the cultural tradition there and they're finding a lot of evidence that that was the case. Now names up the sides, maybe name across the top. Now think of the symbolism here those very names, actual individual names, are covered by what? The substitutionary blood that's shed by an innocent in the place of the guilty? How powerful is that, huh? You see, it's a personal God. You have to have that personal understanding of the Savior. Now, what was the response that was called for? We can read it in 28. This is, the tr- this is the basic response that you could find. I don't see any exceptions to it, actually. The whole nation apparently did this because you don't, you don't have any stories about those who didn't. But then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did in verse 28. But did they have a choice to make? The answer is yes. They had a choice to make. Were they going to take God at his word and were they going to apply the blood to the, to the names on the side or to the doorposts, however you look at it, were they going to apply the blood? Uh, how, apply the blood to their account. Were they going to do it or not? That was a choice that had to be made. Is there a choice that still has to be made, friends? Are you going to apply the blood of Christ to your account or not? Are you going to put your faith in it so that the blood can be applied? It, was the blood shed, friends? Yes. Has the sin debt been paid for? The answer is yes, the payment is available to put to the account of those who are guilty. Has the blood covered the sin of all men in the sense of has it been applied to your account apart from faith? And the answer is no. See, God just didn't choose to save people against their will. He chose to save everyone who would choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the story that the Bible tells. And so the question is, have you made that choice? I hope you have. Because here we see the first 
picture, the first illustration that I can see in the Bible of the manner of Christ's death or the cross. And again and again throughout the storyline of the Bible, man is reminded of his guilt and the need for substitutionary death, the substitutionary death of an innocent in the place of the guilty. Guilty. So the foreshadowing and illustrations continue to point to this final future sacrifice of Jesus. It's another illustration, another great illustration we see here tonight about how only God can save. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can spend in your word. Thank you for this opportunity to just consider just another illustration that you made, another hint that you made in the Old Testament, reminding us that man could never atone for his own sin, that you were going to have to make a way where there was no way apart from any works on the part of man, and that you were going to do that because motivated by nothing but your great love for us. Pray that we would respond in faith to the work of your son. Pray that we would love to tell the story of Jesus and his love, and we would want to share this good news with others you've put in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose I should pray for the meal too. Let's do that. Everyone heads back down. Hey, guys, you, you realize that when you pray just as a, as a matter of sort of respect, we have culturally kind of bowed our heads a little bit. It's a sign of sort of reverential respect for God. You, you don't have to do that anytime you would pray to God. And the other thing that we do, many of you have done this, you might even see people doing it, they fold their hands, right? And so that's something that is cultured. You know that in the Bible, there's way more passages talking about a posture of prayer with lifted hands that are actually raised like as you're casting a care or casting a prayer to the Lord. And so the truth is there's lots of different ways you can pray, but let's, let's pray again for our meal. I forgot to add that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this food that you've provided for us, this opportunity to fellowship together, to share food together, to break bread together. Pray that it would be an encouraging time. Thank you for, again, all the hard work that went into it and how you provide for us, even in very obvious ways like providing food for us to eat. Pray that, again, you would be lifted up and glorified by our conversations and our time spent together for the rest of the evening. Pray for safety in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, kids, I remind you again of the rules. Uh, a few rules here. Stay off the stage. Stay out of the classrooms. If you're going to be in uh, monkeying around with stuff, Make sure you do it respectfully and don't break anything. Also, we're not going to have drinks or food anywhere other than the fellowship hall. That's where we're going to eat. And if we are playing, we're going to be sort of respectful of not breaking things and just being kind of, uh, kind of uh, thoughtful, making sure we're not too rammy and make sure that we're kind. Make sure that we're kind of using our brains. Kids, don't, don't look, look at me because some of you aren't doing this very good. We're using the brains that God gave us, right, to not be too rough where someone might get hurt. We're also not excluding people. We're making sure everyone can, is allowed or is invited to come play with us. And uh, we're just trying to use a little bit of common sense about not knocking an older person over or running around in, in too, too destructive of a way. Does that make sense, kids? Okay, so let's have fun tonight because that's what we do, why we do this church fellowship night. We do want to have fun. I'm not trying to make you think there's too many rules, but let's use a little bit of common sense that God gave us to adults uh, that applies to you too. All right, you're dismissed.